0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So during the heat of the uh, pandemic, everyone took on something new. For some of you, it was gardening. For others, it was a home renovation project. For others, it was home uh, at-home exercising, more books, a new hobby. People walked their street blocks more. But all of us know someone who took up baking bread. Now, my main theory of why this is, is because the Great British Bake Off ratings took off the year before. And considering that people were confined to their homes, they watched ordinary people bake wonderful looking bread and thought, it can't be that hard. (laughs) Joke's on them. In, In our home, one of the main hobbies that Sarah took up was making bread. And she could talk to you for hours about how, in her words, baking bread is a spiritual experience. And she's not wrong. If you think about the process of bread making, the process itself is somewhat miraculous because once grain is crushed with a stone, it turns into flour. And by adding simple elements of the earth like water and salt and yeast, we help form the process that creates bread. And one of the great challenges of living in our current age and then reading the scripture is that when we hear Jesus say the words, I am the bread of life, that phrase has little punch to it. Because when you think of bread, you might consider bread like these, the chocolate babka, or the pesto pinwheel, or the chala, beautiful artisan-style table centerpieces that make you almost not want to eat it because it looks so stunning. Or worse, you think of the mouth-watering appetizer rolls at Texas Roadhouse with that cinnamon butter that melts in your mouth just by looking at it, but, but that's what they are, right? They're appetizers. Little snacks before you get to the actual meal. Heck, I walked into Kroger this week and noticed the bread aisle, and there are over a hundred different types of loaves and specialty breads and sandwiches, etc. And the truth is, we do not live like much of the rest of the world. But for the better part of human history, most cultures, and many still today, have had their diets center around one single crop. Wheat, rice, potato, malay, yam. The shape of the calendar was centered around that crop festivals and parties were dependent on when this crop would arrive. And in a world in which it is highly likely that you and I did not eat the same thing today for breakfast, it is difficult to conceptualize that if you lived in a town in the ancient Near East, you would meet people throughout the day who had the same thing to eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner as you did. And in the life and times of Scripture, that crop was wheat. And when we read bread... In Scripture, consider the main dish. Think the centerpiece of every meal. Meat was not something that was mass-produced like it is today. Meat was eaten on unique occasions, special events and celebrations. Meat was not a staple. The occasional feasting in the Bible is associated with meat. Meat was difficult to store, expensive to buy, which meant you needed a crowd large enough to feed it so as to not waste it. But bread, well, bread is the opposite of meat. The most sensible way to consume bread was every day at a table with others. It was cheap to buy, grain was easy to store, so easy, in fact, to store, that when the harvest would come, the people would gather it up for the entire year so as to save up so they would not starve. And the ingredients to make bread was the stuff of everyday households. Meat was scarce, and when it was brought out, it was cause for celebrations. Bread, though, speaks of households and sufficiency and daily, ordinary life. Without meat, you have fewer parties and feasts, but without bread in the scripture, you starve. In many ways, the biblical word for bread corresponds more closely to our concept of food than our concept of bread. It wasn't just an important part of the meal, but the essence of all meals. Bread was life. So let's look at the idea of bread from the Old Testament. The beginning, in the beginning of the story of Genesis, we actually get an allusion to bread. When we read in Genesis 3 that the ground will become cursed because of Adam and Eve's betrayal of God's promise in the garden, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Referring to the difficult labor of farming as evidence of toiling and the ground being cursed. And then, in Genesis 18, Abraham is visited by three guests from God. And when the visitors arrive, he says, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on. He then goes inside, tells Sarah to whip up some cakes and then goes to his herd and prepares a young calf to be eaten. So the reference here to a morsel of bread is important because we read that as a piece of bread rather than an entire meal. But the reference here is to lavish hospitality That included their idea of bread and a calf. Then you get bread in the wilderness when the Israelites are removed from Egypt. Here's this time between, there's a time between Egypt and the Promised Land where they wander in the dry desert for four decades. And the Israelites end up whining to the Lord and Moses and Aaron, wishing they were back enslaved in Egypt rather than free from oppression. And God hears their complaint and does something so kind He rains down bread that resembles frost. And every morning the Israelites woke up trusting that God would provide for them. And each morning they would gather up enough bread flakes for the day, not more and not less. And for forty years they would live off bread from God. The daily provision and reminder that God is present to the needs of today, of in fact this morning. And then you flip over to Deuteronomy and you find a description of those decades of wandering in the desert. It says this in Deuteronomy 8. Then, God reminds the Israelites of what happened in the wilderness and why it happened. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The bread that fell from the sky was not so the Israelites would merely be fed, but that they would know the feeder. Not that they would rely on manna, but that they would listen to the very words of God who said, I will do this. The idea that human beings were more dependent on the words of Yahweh than they were food was so completely foreign to them that they needed frosted flakes to fall from the sky for 40 years to remind them food is good, but not enough. Then in Exodus 25, we read the instructions that the bread of presence be put in the tabernacle before God. So every Sabbath, the priest would put 12 loaves of bread in the temple as a sacrifice to God. This does not imply that God would eat the bread, but that it was a token of gratitude to God for watching over them and for protecting them and for providing for them. The bread would then be eaten by Aaron and his sons who were priests, and they would eat it on the Sabbath day. And the bread would be made for the following week again as an offering to God, this ever-present reminder that our never-ending thankful, of our never-ending thankfulness. And then one of the most notable prayers, pray to God throughout the Jewish tradition, and would even be prayed during the Passover meal, was, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then if you move over to the New Testament, you see the very place where Jesus is born. In Hebrew, Bethlehem is two words, Bethel, meaning house of God, and Lahem, meaning bread. So before Jesus ever arrives on scene, he is born into a podunk backwoods town that would be impossible to find on a globe nowadays. And this little everyday ordinary town known as the house of bread will birth the Messiah that will feed us all. And before Jesus' ministry ever starts, he enters the desert having fasted for 40 days and the first thing he is tempted with is basic needs. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is quoting what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 8. God is sufficient. He is who we feed on. Then arguably one of the more offensive and subversive ways God brings his kingdom to come is when he gives words and language to his disciples when they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. The Lord's Prayer is this uniquely powerful and all-encompassing prayer, and it is much more than asking for food on a day-to-day basis, but it is not less than that. And that is one of the greatest comforting words of God to us, that he is interested and invested in our day-to-day, even the prayers for daily bread. And the prayer becomes twofold. It is a reminder that we cannot depend on economic markets or governments or security systems or our own genius. We are not slaves to inflation or our personal preferences for, for political advancement. We don't even have control over our involuntary next breath. Or the fact that I've been standing up for a few minutes and my heart hasn't suddenly stopped beating. Our dependence is on the one who can only supply the things we need more of his presence and the fulfilling taste of his love. Our prayer for daily bread is a prayer for provision for today. Are you praying for daily bread? Not the next 10 years or the next 10 months. Let's just try asking for more of God's presence for the next 10 minutes. And the Lord's Prayer is also a reminder that no request is too small for God. Some of you are parents and all of you are children. And a good parent is not offended or slighted when a child asks for something. As parents, we aren't only wanting to answer the big stuff. In fact, I imagine most of us would say that that trust is was curated with a parent, not because of one large decision that was answered one time, but because a lot of small, seemingly innocent requests were answered over the course of time. Good parents do not laugh at the seemingly silly request of their kids. They find joy that their kids would even ask them, and they find even greater joy in answering them. Give us this day our daily bread. Is a request that God finds joy in answering, because he finds joy in giving good gifts to his children. And then the feeding of the 5,000, and one of the most known stories of Jesus that is told in all four Gospels, Jesus replicates the miracle of manna by doing something that is both miraculous and revealing. The miracle is this, a bunch of Jewish people are on their way to Jerusalem because it's the week of Passover, and word gets out that this rabbi continues to do otherworldly things like heal the sick. So the crowd is growing, and Jesus recognizes that and turns to Philip and asks, how are we going to feed these people? And then Andrew walks up, I imagine half jokingly, and says, well, there's this kid who's got a couple of fish and a few loaves. Jesus says, that'll work. And over the next several hours, he continues to multiply the weak and insignificant offering of a few pieces of bread and a fish to feed an audience of 5,000 plus. And the first response is a somewhat rational response. This is the prophet who has come into the world. This is the one, look at him. Look what he is doing, and look what he continues to do. He is meeting physical needs. He is multiplying physical elements. He is giving us what we want. This is our guy, the promised ruler who will save us. And then it says, "Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself." A day goes by. Jesus has fled the scene. The crowds continue to search for him. Eventually, find him and are asking, "Where'd you go?" And this is where the miracle gets peeled back and the revelation occurs. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you're full. You are not interested in who I am, but what I can give you. This is our great conundrum in Christianity. Is God useful to us or beautiful to us? Do we merely want what he can give us, or do we actually want him? Are we interested in the miraculous things he does? Are we interested in the miracle of himself? At the baseline is our hunger for God or for His gifts. So they asked Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So this is where it disrupts our entire, this is where it disrupts the entire paradigm of the Israelites. And this, quite frankly, is where our paradigm gets disrupted as well. Just like was mentioned a minute ago, bread from heaven came down in droves. the Israelites. Each morning they would rise dependent on God to bring bread, and he did. He provided it. And this reality was still true from John 6, 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Jesus did not enter the world so that they might have their stomachs full, but their whole being filled. The people are looking for grandiose signs and they end up missing the whole sign to the whole world. John 6.50 This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, they wanted to Coronate him as king because of the miracle of bread. They are less interested in the miracle of life. They were excited that Jesus could take away their hunger. They were less thrilled that he was more interested in taking away their sin. Jesus is explaining to them that the provision of bread off a moment's notice is nothing compared to the offering up of himself for the life of the world. Which leads us to what we practice every other week here. We do something radical, yet ordinary, supernatural, and yet simple. We listen to the words of Jesus. Because we stubbornly believe, like Peter, that he has the words of life. Where else are we going to go? So we take the bread and we eat it. We feed our stomachs and our spirits on the reality that God has come into the world for us. We need the fill because we are hungry for him. We need the reminder because we forget who we are. We need the bread because we are physical beings needing physical reminders of our need for God. We need the body of Jesus because we have become convinced that climbing our way up to God is not working. And God, though, has worked his way down to us and given us something we didn't know we need and yet desperately desire him. And he's given us the gift of bread as a reminder that he comes in the most ordinary of ways jesus is the true and better bread he is the manna from heaven the one who has come from god he is the bread of presence set apart by god offered up to god he is the very house of bread not turning anyone away but a house big enough to feed the world and he is the bread of hospitality where we are reminded that those who we think should be left out are brought in and those who we think should be brought in are left out. We want the miracles he gives us himself. We want the spectacular and he's about daily provision. We want to see Jesus split the sea and sometimes he does that, but he is more interested in splitting our hearts. We want to be filled with the supernatural wonder, and sometimes he does that, but a lot of times it's a staple of regular food. We want the Hoover Dam, Grand Canyon Overlook all the time, and he wants you around a table with others, listening, encouraging, being challenged, and serving your neighbor, and the regular routine becomes an opportunity for supernatural encounter. See, in times of celebration, we feast. We throw parties and eat and commemorate and laugh and sing and dance. It's natural. Every culture and people group breaks out the best wine, opens up the best cut of meat, and we feast. And God is a God of feasting, and he meets us there. And in times of devastation, we fast. In times of national tragedy, personal dark nights of the soul, and our own ache for the world to be right again, our desire to overcome sin, we go without food, we mourn, we lament, and God is a God of fasting, and he meets us there too. But those times can either feel like the magnificent or the distraught. And much of life consists somewhere in between. Not constantly in the valley or living on the high of a 10-foot wave, but rather the beautiful, slow, ordinary days. We must have them. We need them. It's what makes up most of our life. See, life with God is made up not of wild cycles of feast and fast, but a thousand mumbled prayers also ran church services and half-digested Bible readings. It's full of slow conversations and half-hearted meals and dinners with guests that seem part boring and part interesting. It's full of days that just feel like another day. And it's there we find daily bread, the bread of life. That's how we stay alive. That's how we continue to grow, not by pounding down lovely desserts or withdrawing in constant mourning, but just breathing and eating bread. See, Jesus is the creator of the world. Everything in the world is made through him and by him and for him. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. He created bread. But he created bread to say something about himself, namely that he is like bread. Jesus did not come so much to meet your desires. He came to change your desires so that he is the central, all-consuming, overarching desire. He is sustenance and substance. He is our heart's greatest hunger. Bread proves the necessity of God. God has given us bodies, and in our bodies we can enjoy food. Many of us do. What a sweet gift. But ultimately, we don't merely want food. We need food. And so it is with God. We want Him and need Him. And then there is the surprise of God. That He has included us. See, we need God. And God desires us. He invites us to the table. His Spirit is present with us at the Lord's table. And He's reminding us that He is the bread. Which means He's including us. That is what communion means. The sharing of one loaf. And as we break the bread that Jesus has given us, there are two profound statements of inclusion that are made. First, that Jesus has included me. Who am I? Our posture in coming to Jesus is full of stunning wonder. Why me? But the other side of bread is this. Most of us are now comfortable with food on the go. We eat in the car, we eat by ourselves, we eat in a hurry and on the run. COVID accelerated the no contact delivery. Now I can pull up Chick-fil-A, order from my car, never get out, have someone deliver me food and eat it while driving in a manner of four minutes. It's awesome and terrible because there's no actual intimacy with someone else. See, breaking bread, sharing food, eating with one another is a way that we include one another. When I break bread with you, I am giving you something of immense value, the free sharing of food that communicates love as tangibly as anything else. So when Paul speaks of the church sharing in one loaf, this was not some novel idea that they dreamed up. Bread was typically stationed at the center of the table where people would take a piece and break it off with their hands. And in a word, it represented unity and togetherness. And so with the death of Jesus being at the center of the table, this is what bread means. The necessity of our life and our common life together, our shared life with one another. Living in a culture with food as prominent and as available as it is, we don't quite receive the gravity of this statement. But in a world where you need bread to survive, breaking bread with someone Tearing your loaf and giving it to someone else was a significant act of inclusion. So much so that people would deem it intimate. To break bread with someone was to welcome them and deem them as wonderfully valuable. Welcome to my home. Eat with my family very much in line with the phrase, mi casa su casa, what's mine is yours. This is why the psalmist feels betrayal when he is attacked by his close friend in whom he trusted, who ate my bread. This is why I don't think it's unimportant that John 13, 27 reads like this. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This isn't some random fact that John puts in for background knowledge. This is part of the plot, the story of betrayal. This man had to walk with Jesus for three years, apprenticed under him, been invited by the Savior to learn how to pray, to heal the sick, to be sent out into the towns with the message, the kingdom of God has arrived in the king. So the fact that the God of the universe would invite him into intimacy through the breaking of bread is all the more bizarre when you think about that Judas would bury Jesus in the ground for a hundred bucks hours later. This is such an unbelievable act of grace that we have no category for. But this is our God, the category-busting God, the one who is the bread of life and the one who invites those who will kill him into intimate community. There are two questions on the table. Is our hunger for God more like our hunger for a meal or an appetizer? See, an appetizer is nice, sometimes pretty, but it's never the main course. It's just not the centerpiece. People around the world don't go to restaurants for apps; they go to eat the main meal. Is our approach to Jesus that he's merely a helpful complement to the precursor of our life, an add-on that you order but not the reason that you're here? An appetizer is very much a take-it-or-leave-it menu item, which, by the way, is very much our concept of bread. Yeah, I don't need it today. Or do we approach Jesus how we approach our concept of food? We need food. We must have food. It replenishes our bodies. It gives us energy. It nourishes us. It sustains us. It is what we need. Without it, we don't just grow irritable and frustrated. We ultimately die. And we want food. When we are hungry, we dream of food. In the hunger pains, there are times where food, where we won't be stopped until we get food. And when we eat, there is a settling of our appetite, there's a restfulness, there's a peace. Our bodies get replenished, we exhale, we delight, we're filled, we're content, we slow down, we pause, and we enjoy. And so it is with God. We need God. His presence, His instructions, His way of being in the world, His loving correction, His ever-flowing grace. It isn't something that we'll, that's an add-on. Without Him, we die right on the vine. I want us to be a people who sit at the feet of Jesus and delight, who open up the scriptures and exhale, who long for more of his presence during the everyday stuff of life and find it, who walk the streets of our community and are amazed at the image bearers he has put around us, who find joy in what God is doing in and through the people in this body, who are challenged and edified by the words of others and who are paying attention to the very spirit of God within us. I want to be a church that is not looking for a miracle, but has been overcome by a miracle, who has seasons of feasting and periods of fasting, but is mostly made up of faithfulness to the hard, wonderful, and mostly unimpressive and unseen work of following Jesus. And the second question is this. Is our discipleship to Jesus more about who we can keep out or who we can invite in? We have this tendency in the American church to build something of a cloning factory where those around us are just like us. But Jesus' followers, while sharing in their Jewish identity, had very different views of the world. They did not see the globe the same way. They didn't see their own cities the same way. And the beauty of following Jesus is that he is an equal opportunist, meaning he challenges everyone and offers everyone the same share in his body. No one is off limits. For the one who loved the Roman Empire, being with Jesus made him love it a little less. And for the one who hated the Roman Empire, being with Jesus made him love it a little more. And for both parties, it made them love Jesus the most. If we follow the real Jesus of the real scriptures and have the Spirit of God within us, then we are going to naturally seek out the people that Jesus went after who may not be like you. Our world says to go after influencers and culture shapers and people of great significance to not waste time on those who have no clout, but go after those who have platforms that can use their microphones for PR for Jesus. I mean, there's a reason that Christians get so excited when celebrities shift their allegiance from not following Jesus to following Jesus, or at the very least, advertising for him. We feel like it validates our faith. Like, see, look, even they became a Christian. See, they're one of us now. Chance, Tim Tebow, Justin Bieber, Kanye West, Chris Pratt, Tyler Perry. These are influential people with large following, so people naturally celebrate. And this is not to comment on their faith. This is just to say that when you read the Gospels and you see the invite list of all the people God offers a seat to in his kingdom, I'm not so we share the same list. Who in our community, who in your sphere of influence needs bread? And who might you not be inclined to offer that to? I was telling someone the other day that I think the honeymoon stage and season of our church is wearing off. And I think that's a good thing. Because it's natural and easy to do something new and interesting and exciting. A lot of people can get on board with that. But when intimacy starts to happen, and you start to become known, and you start to open up, and you start to take risk, and you start to fail, you start to show wounds, maybe you're either wounded yourself or you wound others. That's actually where life is found. But it's a slow death, and no one likes dying. Shedding the flesh, opening up to the Spirit, and thus to one another. And so we need each other to point us back to the bread of life, the one who energizes and sustains and feeds our hearts. We delight in God, the bread of life, and we share the bread with the people of God, and we look for opportunities for small moments to ask God, Who is it that I know that you have invited to your table? And then listen. And then take a risk. Because you are just a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. As Mark Luther said, who is it? Who do you want to know that God has given his flesh for the life of the world, for their life? Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.